to the Faith Cuff Podcast. Join us as we continue our Chasing the Wind series, a study on futility and fulfillment in Ecclesiastes. Awesome. Thanks, worship team. What a a beautiful introduction to be able to praise God together. And uh, do you guys want to just give a huge thanks again for our friends from Esperanza Viva for joining us? Thank you so much. You know, ever since we started sharing space here on this campus, we dreamed of being able to partner together in ministry someday, and, and what, a, what a great opportunity to begin to see the, maybe the first fruits of that happening today, and we'd love to see more of that, amen? Uh, my name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to add my welcome to you, uh, both for those of you here with us in person and also joining us online. It is always good to be together with God's people. And I wonder this morning, as we continue in our series uh, called Chasing the Wind, do you ever wish your life was better or different or more than it is today? Do you ever struggle to find satisfaction and contentment in your day-to-day living? you feel like there's more to do, more to get, more to achieve, more to pursue in order to finally arrive at whatever that destination is that you're hoping to get to, that you're heading for, that someday maybe you'll arrive at where you'll finally find satisfaction and contentment and you can rest easy knowing that there's nothing more for you to do. (laughs) Isn't that the dream, though, that we believe is out there? Isn't that what we long for in life? And we are in our second round of working through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a study in the futility and the fulfillment of living life in this world, life under the sun, as the teacher puts it. In this last fall, we went through the first three chapters, and now we're jumping into chapters four through eight in this second round, where the Ecclesiastes, or in Latin, the Kohelet, which in English means the teacher, is suggesting for us that it might just be possible if we're willing to pause and to examine our lives intentionally, that there might be a fatal flaw in your thinking and in my thinking, a glitch in the system that somehow robs us of our highest hopes and our best laid plans that often leaves us feeling weary and worn out and disappointed again and again and again. He challenges us to examine the question, what can you actually gain from life in this world? What do you get when it's all over? After running the race, after pursuing all that this world has to offer, what profit do you think that you will ultimately be able to find? What do you get to keep in the end that you didn't start out life with? Where do you find genuine fulfillment in living in this world? And he challenges us because as he examines life in the world and he sees what many people's experiences are, he says in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, or or we have said a better word is is futile. They're they're empty, They're, they're useless at gaining life, happiness, joy, satisfaction, because in the end, they're all just a chasing after the wind. And we've learned from 
Kohelet that the, to chase the wind is ultimately to seek to grasp and hold on to something that by its very nature is not something that can be held on to or managed or controlled. Yet once we learn to embrace the, the true reality of life in this world and understand that we are created by a God who designed us to be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with one another, and that we embrace our place in this world and begin to understand that seeking fulfillment through our own wisdom and our own strength to gain profit for ourselves was never God's intention and ultimately is an exercise of futility then we open ourselves to discover, as Jesus came to reveal, that life only comes as the gift of God to us, and all we can do is simply receive it. And so today we're going to jump into chapter 4, but I want to ask you to pray with me one more time uh, before we jump into the scriptures and just ask God to continue to bless us this morning to speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God whose love never runs out, that you faithfully and patiently invite us to look up from our life circumstances and to see your love at work on our behalf, to understand that though we may see the punishment and the pain of the cross, all you see is the empty tomb. And for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that he saw on the other side of death, Jesus endured the pain and the suffering of life in this world, even to death on the cross, so that we could be rescued from the veil and the illusion of our own sinful nature that thinks that somehow we can be the gods of our own lives and to discover in a new and a fresh way that life comes truly as a gift of love from you. So speak your word to us this morning. Help us to see and to hear in ways that will inspire us to live our lives on a new path in a new way, in relationship with you and with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As part of this second round of our series, I also introduced you guys to a book called Present Over Perfect, written by Shauna Nyquist. And in the book of Pre Present Over Perfect, which I think captures kind of the basic theme of Ecclesiastes in her title really well, she walks us through her own journey of coming to the realization that her frantic and overfilled life was leaving her empty and tired and depressed. And she shares the wisdom that she gained along the way from doing the hard work of beginning to remake her life from the inside out. And in the beginning of the book, she says, I tried all of the outside ways first. But I quickly found out it was not about managing time or housekeeping. It was not about to-do lists or scheduling or minutes or hours. The journey has been about love, about worth, about God, about what it means to know Him and to be loved by Him in a way that grounds and reorders everything. And I think for us, again, that is the invitation that the teacher would want us to understand. That the ground of love in our life from God is intended to remake and reorder everything. Even though it may seem 
that our own circumstances in life are unique to us and that maybe no one else knows or understands what we're going through and that our experience of, of suffering and pain and difficulty is different than, than other people. In reality, the teacher says, we are simply experiencing the reality of life in a broken and a fallen world. And just like every generation that has gone before us, there is really nothing new under the sun. But as we can see in the rest of the Bible, including here in Ecclesiastes, the teacher wants to remind us that whenever we as mortal human beings begin to think that somehow we can take control of our lives and manage our destinies in a way that are going to produce the kinds of results that we hope for, we're simply setting ourselves up for disappointment. And inevitably, not only do we cause our own souls to suffer, but we cause suffering for the others around us as well. And that's the theme of chapter 4 that he picks up. He started in chapter 3, but he picks up in chapter 4. And I, I want to read all of chapter 4 today to get a, a feel for the context, but we're only going to have time to, to go through uh, the first half of the chapter, and we'll pick up as a, as a second round of chapter 4 next week. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, he begins and he says again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who are already died are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all the toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, or this too is futility and a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless or futile under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to all his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is futility and a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw all that who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth who, who was the king's successor, and there was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This, too, is futility in a chasing after the now, at first glance, if you read through chapter 4, uh, there are essentially kind of three main sections that we just read, and it, it, it's not easily discernible how these three sections might fit together. They, they seem to be a little bit desperate in their themes. However, scholars suggest that if you look for the recurring words in the chapter, 
you can trace the thread of the theme that Kohelet wants us to understand. And that theme is what is better in life. If you remember verse 6, he says, better is one handful with tranquility. And in verse 9, he says, two are better than one. And in verse 13, he says, better is a poor but wise youth than a rich and foolish king. And as we've learned in previous chapters, the teacher is trying to help us to identify that there are really two paths in life. There's a choice that we can make each day about what our goals and our purpose and our hopes, for, hopes are for the life that we're living. And that the path of striving after pursuit and gain in our own strength the path is different than the path that sees all of life that simply comes as a gift from God. Both paths will entail toil and labor and difficulty, but those who center their life on God and understand the, the purpose for the God-designed life as a gift, discover the joy and the fulfillment of living life each day as an opportunity to receive that gift from God. And so the teacher begins in chapter 4 here in many ways stating something that we really all know too well. The world in which we live, for many people, if not some of us, is a place of oppression and injustice and suffering. In the Bible, if you look at the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and onward through the progression of in the development of human societies, we can see that in spite of all the amazing achievements of human culture and society, we can't disguise the consistent and recurring erosion of healthy relationship and the breakdown of community and family that result as humankind relentlessly and remorselessly pursue profit and power as a means of happiness in this world. You see, in the biblical worldview that Kohelet is trying to help us to understand, it is our alienation from the God who created us as his creatures, as human beings, that leads us to inevitably be alienated from one another and to begin to see each other as objects for our use rather than as people to be loved. He's picking up the theme of wickedness and evil that he started in chapter 3, where, where, where the world as a place of striving after gain becomes a place of tears and disproportionate power for many people who fall under the boot of those who are stepping over them, and sadly, many of them have no comforter. You see, in the Bible, oppression is often humanized by depicting it in relationship to one's neighbor. If you want to make oppression and injustice real, think about the person that lives next to you or the people who live close to you and the dynamics of the relationships that we live in in our own sphere of influence. Because oppression and injustice often involves cheating one's neighbors of something or defrauding them or robbing them. You can go through so many of the Old Testament scriptures where it talks about what it looks like to mistreat other people. It involves the act of making unjust gain, which often includes inordinate profit made from charging interest on others that the Bible calls usury, often from people who are already without resources and deeply in debt. And for this reason, the Israelites were forbidden in the Old Testament from charging interest to, to one another as Israelites. 
They were neighbors to one another, and they weren't allowed to to pursue that form of gain in their own community. They were allowed to charge interest and loans on foreigners because, assumingly, that was considered a part of standard business practices and international trade of the day. But the Old Testament particularly condemns the practice of charging interest because of its impact on the poor and the needy and the downtrodden. A loan for the poor and the needy should be an act of compassion and and, and an opportunity to take care of one's neighbor. It it teaches that making a profit off of a loan from a poor person is simply taking advantage of their, their dire circumstances. It's like kicking them when they're down. And so this law served as a reminder for God's people that helping those who are in need is something that should be done without expecting anything in return and is a reflection of the heart of the God who created us in his image. You can look in some of the words in Leviticus 25, 35 through 37. It says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner or a stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. And God continued to challenge his people on this issue as a critique of their society as they went on and and found themselves drifting away from God's path and God's plan. In Ezekiel 22, 12, it says, In you are people who accept bribes to shed blood. You take interest and make a profit from the poor. You extort unjust gain from your neighbors. And you have forgotten me, declares the Sovereign Lord. And in the wisdom literature of the Bible, we can see a stark reality of the nature of life in this fallen world, life under the sun, that the teacher is expanding for us here in chapter 4, and that is that in this broken world, Proverbs 22, 7 tells us that it is the rich who rule over the poor, and it is the borrower who is the slave to the lender. You see, oppression in this world comes down to an abuse of power, whether it's financial power or otherwise, and it's perpetrated by those who have money, those who have influence, those who have power. And it's often perpetrated on those who have less power and are often the poor and the vulnerable and those who don't have the ability to take care of themselves. And as a result, there's no one to comfort them. In the Bible, these are often people identified by phrases like the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the stranger. And so in the context of Ecclesiastes, oppression in this world is the result of this goal in life of seeking personal accumulation for ourselves. Seeking profit or gain in life without regards for the needs of how our actions and our choices impact other people around us and in the world. And so while the teacher is using the example of life out there in the world, then we can often distance ourselves from the oppression that we see and the brokenness in the world around us. I think he's also challenging us by paying attention to the brokenness of the world we live in to turn the lens inward on ourselves, to examine our own lives in the light of the temptation to see profit and gain as a source of purpose in our lives. Are we tempted to fall victim to this path and not realize how it is impacting Impacting those around us in negative and harmful ways. 
And ultimately, where he'll get to next week is it not only impacts others around us in harmful ways, but ultimately, it erodes our own soul and it destroys our own life. And I think too often, perhaps we, without even realizing it, have a tendency as fallen human beings to objectify other people and relationships, to think of people as something that is designed to, for our benefit and for our gain, whether it's our spouse or our children or our church or our friends. How often do we approach our relationships and life in this world with our first thought about what is in it for me? And in that process, do we begin to think of people not as human beings to be loved, but as resources to be managed and controlled and to be used for our own growth and our own happiness and our own purposes? And how often do we see that as long as we feel like we're getting some profit or gain from a relationship that we're in, we're content to keep working at it, right? But as soon as we start to feel like the cost is greater than the reward, we're done. I'm done with you. I'm not getting what I want out of you anymore, so I don't need you. See, the attitude seems to be that as long as you're serving me and my needs and keeping me comfortable and happy, we're okay. But as soon as you disappoint me or become an obstacle to my own pursuit of happiness in my life, now we've got a problem. Because really, it's all about me. You see, the teacher is warning us thousands of years ago that there's nothing new under the sun. And in a continually desperate attempt to create some form of profit and gain in life as we climb the ladder of success or popularity or status or achievement, we will easily kick and trample on the heads of those who are below us on the ladder or maybe even more insidious like the religious people. In Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, we might simply ignore the plight of others on our pathway to pursuing our own religious purity and our own good standing before God. Do you realize that our religiosity can even be a form of trying to pursue gain in our own lives? Even in our desire to please God and to be good Christian people, we can unwittingly be motivated but what we think will most profit our own personal relationship with God, what will look good in the eyes of other church people around us, and what will most enhance my own personal religious experience when I come to church. Yet given the teacher's analysis of how this world works, if we're willing to be honest and pay attention, and that we begin to understand the futility of seeking any kind of profit or gain in life, whether it be financial or fame or spiritual and religious. We shouldn't be surprised at the connection between this way of living and the breakdown of healthy relationship and community that we so often see in our human interactions with one another and often even in the church. The idea of comfort in the Bible is not just offering kind and comforting words, but to, to offer hope and to offer help and to offer protection for those who are less powerful, who don't have a voice, who can't make, make their ends meet. And how can we as a society and as people who say we love God 
demonstrate that love by being willing to care for those around us, our own neighbor. See, to comfort someone in the Bible is to actually help them and to protect them. And the Bible says we see this most often in how God relates to us. Psalm 23, right? The good shepherd, even though I walk through the valley, oh, the darkest valley, I will feel no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. Right? The, the shepherd's tools of the rod and the staff are a comfort to the sheep because the tools help the shepherd to save the sheep from difficult circumstances. It helps to guide the sheep to know how to go in the right way, and it offers the shepherd to protect the sheep from the enemies and the, the uh, perpetrators that would want to come and attack the sheep. So comfort in the Old Testament in the Bible is about more than just kind words. It's actual, physical, real-life help. Psalm 86, 17 says, Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. See, comfort comes to us as human beings in the form of real, genuine care and help. People who are oppressed and deprived even uh, of the most modest means of practical help and protection in their lives struggle to be able to find joy and, and hope in living because of the unjust oppression that they experience in our fallen world. So he goes on and he makes a pretty radical statement, right? These are some of the hard words of Ecclesiastes. He says, the dead are happier than the living. Now, now I, one scholar suggests that the NIV uh, has misquoted there the word happier, and it's really more the dead are to be more commended than the living. Why? Because they've actually found rest <laughs> in life. Yet in such a world, he goes on to say, it's more fortunate than both the dead and the living as those who've never been born because they've never had to see or experience how horrible and awful and terrible life in this world can be for some people. Now, it may sound extreme, but, but don't we have conversations like this ourselves? Haven't you talked with people or heard from people, or maybe you've even said these words for yourself, I'm not sure if I even want to have kids. Is it even fair to bring someone into a world like this? Haven't you had those thoughts? Haven't you heard that from some people? Men and women, there is nothing new under the sun. This isn't a new thought. This isn't a new world. In many ways, we can become desensitized to the wickedness and the evil and the oppression that exists in the world around us. But Kohelet wants to remind us that it's real and it's present and it's a danger to the well-being of the human family. And, and it's too easy for us to either turn a blind eye or to somehow get caught on the rat race of getting more in life and to miss how our own lifestyle and our own community might be part of creating the injustice and the oppression that's happening in this world, maybe not in our neighborhood, but maybe even on the other side of the planet. But isn't it easier just to go, yeah, I can't do anything about that. There's nothing I can do to make a difference. There's nothing that I can do as an individual, right? So maybe I'll just continue to seek for my own profit, my own gain, and do the best I can in life. 
I think part of why Kohelet uses such strong words and language here is because he wants to wake us up and remind us of the truth of the world that we live in, that we live in a broken and an evil world. And that it is truly shocking when you really pay attention to what one person does to another and what one society perpetrates on another. And if we're really honest, we don't want to look at it, we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to pay attention to it because it's so awful and it's so painful that it creates trauma to the human soul. And so Kohelet says, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be better to have never been born and not even have to be exposed to what this world is really like? And so in waking us up to this reality of this presence and power of wickedness and evil and oppression in the world, the teacher's actually challenging us again to turn the lens inward on ourselves. See, the fuel, he says, that feeds the fires of this ceaseless striving after gain, which ultimately creates injustice and oppression in the, in the world we live in, uh, all spring from man's envy of his neighbor. And if that doesn't get personal, I don't know what will. We can look at the systems of power and injustice and we can blame other nation states and and all those people who have more money and wealth and power than we do, knowing there's nothing that any of us can do individually to change these patterns of evil in the world because ultimately we know that only God can save the world, right? That's the whole message of the gospel. But what the teacher invites us to consider is the ways that we too are being influenced by this culture of the world in which we live, the pattern of life that we are tempted to pursue that somehow tells us that if we just believe strong enough that you have the strength and you have the wisdom and the power, you can be the God of your own life. And in fact, if you're not being successful and if you're not being wealthy enough and if you're not making it, it's because you're not working hard enough. And those of us who have made it and those of us who have found comfort, we've done it because of our own ability? (laughs) Hmm. I don't think that's true. How are we too being influenced and tempted to believe that pursuing profit and gain from those around us, from the society in which we live, are a viable pathway to happiness and satisfaction in life? You see, it's the suspicion, he says, it's the seed in our hearts and in our minds that gets planted that somehow other people are getting more out of life than we are. That leads us to start to look around us and to compare ourselves to our neighbors. And to to look at the magazines and the, the articles and the TVs of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And we go, oh, oh, oh. I would love to have a boat like that. Right? I 
Others are gaining more in life than we are. We compare ourselves to others. We start to see things that, that, oh, we would probably enjoy that. Oh, that would be fun to have. Oh, I'd really like to live a lifestyle like that. And so we join others to start to pursue those things. And maybe I'm not going to own the biggest yacht that was ever built like Bezos, but man, man, maybe I could earn enough to go buy a, a boat that I could go out on the Puget Sound and spend my days tooling around on the water to enjoy life. And so I'm going to spend my time for all the things of this world that are going to allow me to have the leisure lifestyle that's going to allow me to finally find happiness. And so we jump into the insane rat race to grab as much as we possibly can out of life in this world in the limited time that we have. And all the while we're wondering, why are we so unhappy? Why are we so, so frustrated? Why can we never find rest? Why are we never at peace? Why are people fighting all the time? Why can't we just get along? You know, one of the things that amazed me, and this is a little bit tangential, but I think it's related. I don't know if, how you guys str struggled or went through the, uh, the crash of 2008. It hit Tammy and I and Lucas pretty hard. But one of the things as we're going through the, the crash of 08 and we're looking at how are we going to deal with this and, and we're looking at the financial crisis of our, our nation, right? And we start throwing ungodly amounts of money at this problem, right? I can't remember what the number was, but I think it was over $2 trillion, which at that time was like mind-blowing money, right? Now we're like, ah, let's pass a $3 trillion bill. That's no big deal. And I'm thinking, you know, $2.1 or $2 trillion, if we gave that to all the homeowners in America, we could probably pay off everybody's mortgage. Wouldn't that make more sense? And I'm like, why couldn't we do that? Why, why is it so insane that we're going to give all this money to the banks and we're going to give all our money to these companies because they're too big to fail? And someone finally explained to me, he said, you don't understand. Our entire country runs on debt. If you pay off every mortgage, all the banks fail because they don't actually have any money. It's all based on debt. And what does Proverbs say? The rich rule over who? The poor. And the debtor is the slave to the one who owns all the property. Men and women, we are living in a world that has the wool pulled over our eyes and is tempting us to chase after that golden ring. Have you guys heard of the experiment called the monkey trap? Now, I did some research on this, and most people don't think this is actually a way they actually trap monkeys, but it's a great analogy, okay? So the monkey trap consists of this, right? You take a coconut and you drill a hole in the coconut that's just big enough for the monkey to get his hand into if it's open. But you put a little piece of rice in there because he wants the rice. He's going to put his hand in there and he's going to grab onto that rice. And he's not going to let go. And that monkey, because he's been conditioned and trained to, to hold on tightly to the, the few resources that he's going to get, is going to stay in that trap because it's chained to a post until you know, the, the poacher comes and gets that monkey and he loses his life. Now, why is he trapped? He's not trapped physically. He's trapped by an idea. He's trapped by the idea that if he lets go of the rice, he'll be free. 
but he can't do it because he thinks if he lets go of the rice, he's going to miss his opportunity. He's going to miss his profit, his gain, what he needs to be happy and successful in life. And how often are we unwittingly like that monkey where we are grabbing so tightly to what we think is going to make us happy, what we think is going to bring us success. And all the while, God says, all you need to do is simply let go and let me take control of your life. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, Nope. It leads to death. And too often, men and women, we are dying on the inside every day because of the false pursuit of happiness that this world tells us we need to pursue. And the real challenge in this the teacher wants us to see is that we can too easily miss in life is that it's disastrous for our relationships and for our families and for our community to continually to pursue these things insanely, thinking that if we do something, the same thing over and over again, we're going to get a different result. But as I said earlier, and as we'll see more next week, it's equally disastrous to the condition of our own souls. In the end, it's all just a chasing after the wind. In verse 5 and 6, he says, that, yeah, it's true. On the one hand, it is a foolish person who keeps their hands to himself and ruins his life. Hard work is a part of life in this world. We, we need to, to invest our time, talent, and treasure in doing things that, that are meaningful and valuable. It's not like you can just sit back and do nothing and just receive life as a gift. That's not what he's talking about. Right? Even our work, even our toil is a gift from God. And we can find enjoyment in it when we see it that way. Yeah, he literally says that the fool embraces his hands and eats his own flesh. <laughs> right? Rather than embracing work and the fruits of honest labor, the result is that he's got nothing left but to eat himself. Yet the opposite is also wrong-headed, toiling for the purpose of finding gain and profit and chasing the wind in our lives is equally futile and empty. Two handfuls are not better than one or none if they're gained at the expense of tranquility and peace of mind in our lives. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. We live in a world of oppression and injustice because we live in a world that is in rebellion against God. Men and women, we are invited to repent of our own rebellion against God that we are tempted to fall back into over and over again. We can't turn a blind eye to the oppression and the injustice going on in this world if we're not going to speak up for it, if we're not going to talk about it, if we're not going to offer real help and protection for the people who need it. Who in this world is going to do it? We need to be people who seek to provide help and hope and comfort for those most needy, the most downtrodden, the most rejected, whether they're poor or they're kids or they're widows or they're strangers, which is another word for immigrant.
doing so, Kohelet tells us, we'll actually discover the good life. We'll actually discover the better path, the way to find genuine joy and happiness and contentment in this world. I'm going to leave us with the words of 1 John 4, 19 and 21. We love because we're so good. Oh, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And men and women, we're not talking about like being angry, hateful at people, Right? If you're not comforting people and providing help and care and protection, you're not loving them. And so you're actually hating them by your omission. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister in the human family is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love a God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister or neighbor. Amen? We'll pick it up next week. Holy God, we thank you for the challenge of your word and the insight of who you have created us to be. We pray that you give us the courage and the strength to honestly look at who we are and the the structures of society that we live in and the ways that we in our own pursuit of profit and gain and a desire to manage and control our lives maybe even unwittingly continue contribute to the unhealthy relationship dynamics and the brokenness of community life in this world god i pray for faith covenant church that we will be a people who are inspired to love one another more and to love each other better and to be a model in our community of how we can overcome the polarized nature of life in this world and show people that there's a better way of living that it's not about more that you can gain but it's about how we can love and help each other more And that when we genuinely love and care for one another so that no one is in need and so that the vision of of your kingdom at work in this world begins to be shown to be a viable option for living life in this world, I believe, God, people will long for that. They will be attracted to that and they would love to experience that in their own lives. So God, help us to turn the lens on our own hearts first. Change us from the inside out. Help us to seek to be present with you and with one another over our feelings that we need to be perfect. And we will thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord in whose name we pray.